coming to you from the AT&T Podcast Studio, this is Long Story Short. I'm Sean Witt, the Audience Development Director at Oklahoma Watch. We're a statewide non-for-profit news organization that specializes in investigative reporting. You're listening to our weekly podcast, which lets you hear directly from our journalists as they provide deeper insight into their recently published stories. Yasmin Sadi is a summer intern for Oklahoma Watch. She is here to provide a follow-up on a story we reported on last year about four school board members in Billings, Oklahoma, charged with violating an Open Meeting Act. Yasmin, provide some background. What is the Open Meeting Act and why is it so important? Sure. So the Open Meeting Act is a law that states that the majority of a public body or a quorum can't discuss public business outside of a posted meeting. Um, and the purpose of the law is to serve the public, allow them to be informed, and to make sure they're able to hold their elected officials accountable for their actions. What in the world did these school board members do in Billings to violate the act? Yeah, so they were accused of violating the act by meeting multiple times outside of public meetings. One of those times was to hire a new superintendent, according to the court affidavit. Um, they didn't notify the public of the meeting or create an agenda. Um, after this, apparently they were warned by an attorney um, that convening outside a public meeting would violate state law. But after this, they still met with the their top candidate for superintendent, discussed things like school finances and other business. So what's the status of the case now? It was dismissed in May. Ooh, very interesting. I know you spoke to the district attorney on this case. What was his reasoning for the dismissal? So he said that the four school board members did not willfully violate the law. Um, and that's language that's used within the act. Um, he also said that there's a provision in the law that allows for a continuation of the meeting, which is what the school board members intended to do. So because he said they did not intend to um, not follow the law, that it was not a willful violation. Is it common for public transparency cases like this to be dismissed? It is common. And it's actually rare for a case like this to get to this point for people to actually be arrested um, in, in a case like this. So a lot of times willful violation is used as a means to dismiss the case um, and say that you know, we're not going to actually charge it. What precedent does dismissing uh, public transparency cases set going forward? Um, frankly, dismissing public transparency cases and allowing meetings to happen privately without public oversight allows for less transparency about decisions made um, and less transparency about what's being done with taxpayer dollars. Thanks, Yasmeen, and thanks for all the tremendous work you provided with us this summer as this is your final week here at Oklahoma Watch. Make sure you catch all of Yasmeen's coverage on our website at oklahomawatch.org. Jennifer Palmer covers education for Oklahoma Watch. She's here to talk about the first legal challenge to the Catholic Online Charter School approved by the state. Jennifer, this lawsuit is about St. Isidore of Seville, the school that was approved by the statewide virtual charter school board in June, correct? That's right. This is a school that would be, um, you know, open to any student across the state. Um, they would uh, do their work virtually online. Um, and, you know, because of the precedent that this um, approval sets, people around the country are watching how our state handles this decision. Who's challenging the legality of the school? 
Um, so when the board approved it, legal challenges were absolutely expected. So this was not that surprising. But this this first lawsuit um, was filed. The main um, folks that are challenging it are the um, Oklahoma Parent Legislative Action Committee. And they're a, a grassroots nonprofit group um, that advocates for pro-public education policies around the state. Can you tell us more about the group? Sure. So there are also um, some... Um, you know, a group of parents, religious leaders, and taxpayers that have joined on along with OKPLAC. Um, some names you may recognize, you know, Erica Wright um, is a noble parent. She speaks at a lot of the state board meetings, and we've talked to her before for a story on the superintendent's race. Um, Dr. Lori Walke, she's an Oklahoma City pastor, um, you know, known as High Heel Rev on on Twitter, mm-hmm. um, and and some other folks, um, you know, who are um, you know church leaders, um, parents who are concerned about this decision, and of course taxpayers. What are what are they asking for? So in this um, this filing is asking a judge for an injunction, temporary injunction. Basically, they want. Um, the judge to stop the process of the school um, moving along. So the board voted to approve the school, but they haven't signed any contracts or anything that would allow the school to start receiving public funding. Um, And that's kind of the main issue, right? Um, So they want the judge to issue this so that they can stop that while they continue to um, wrangle over the legality of it. So what is their legal argument? You know, they've got um, arguments on a couple of grounds, mostly um, that the uh, approval of the school violates the state constitution, um, also state law, which requires schools to be um, non-sectarian, so not associated with any particular religious sect. Um, And also they say that the management arrangement with the Archdiocese of Oklahoma City and the Diocese of Tulsa violates their own board policies against how virtual schools should be managed. If you could forecast this, do you see this heading for the Supreme Court? Um, Not this challenge. Um, As I said, they expected, you know, legal uh, challenges over the school Um, This particular challenge, they worded and and are only only addressing issues of the state constitution and state law, and they're not raising issues with the U.S. constitution or um, federal law, and so um, they don't expect this one actually to go to the Supreme Court, but there may be others filed. So you've mentioned some names earlier. Who are the defendants into the lawsuit? Um, the statewide virtual charter school board is the main one and, and all, each of those members um, individually, um, but in their official capacity, um, you know, and state superintendent Ryan Walters, um, who oversees the State Department of Education, which, of course, would fund uh, the school if it moves forward. Right. Uh, previously, the AG opted not to represent them, correct? Do, do they have their own attorney? They do, yes. The board um, voted recently to hire a couple of uh, folks to uh, help them with legal counsel. Um, One is an attorney in Tulsa named Daniel Carsey. And then after they hired him, the the board, um, over the chair's objection, hired um, a group called the Alliance Defending Freedom. They're a conservative Christian legal advocacy group that also was involved in the case that overturned Roe v. Wade. 
And, you know, his objection to that basically was that we we want more of a neutral representation, not someone who wants to see this go a particular way. Have they responded to the lawsuit? Not in the court. Um, you know, uh, Superintendent Ryan Walters did issue a statement after the lawsuit was filed, but there has been no official uh, official response yet. All right. Thanks, Jennifer. You can read all of Jennifer's education coverage on our website, oklahomawatch.org. Hey, while you're there, be sure to sign up for her free weekly newsletter, Education Watch. Reporter Whitney Bryan covers vulnerable populations for Oklahoma Watch. She's here to talk about a new partnership with the Carter Center that supports her reporting on mental health and criminal justice. Whitney, can you tell our audience exactly who the Carter Center is and what they do? Sure. Well, the Carter Center is about a 40-year-old nonprofit. It was founded by and named for former President Jimmy Carter and his wife, Rosalind Carter. Its mission includes making access to mental health care more equitable for people really around the world. And they have a big focus on mental health. Um, They founded and support mental health um, programs that support journalism around mental health. So that might seem like kind of a specific goal. um, But for a very long time, mental health journalism and reporting was um, either, you know, um, not up to, to snuff. We didn't understand quite as much about mental health then. Um, so the reporting wasn't quite as clear um, for a very long time. And now that we are understanding a lot more about mental health, they're really focusing on, um, you know, helping reporters educate the public. So this partnership, what does it mean for you and for Oklahoma Watch? Well, the partnership that we are in, it's a group of newsrooms across the country, including a couple others in Oklahoma here, that are covering stories on mental health care access and inequities in that care. So these are topics that we've been covering at Oklahoma Watch that specifically I've been covering for several years now. But um, we're going to be looking at these issues through a slightly wider lens Um, For us, this means a little bit more, you know, national resonance with our audience, taking things that we're seeing in Oklahoma and explaining to, you know, people in other states and readers across the country how this might be reflected in their states as well. Um, They're supporting us in, you know, finding and interpreting complex data around mental health, both in Oklahoma and nationally. Um, They're providing access to experts in the mental health field that I may not already know about. Um, And even uh, mental health support for journalists like myself who are covering these really challenging topics. So how did this partnership manifest itself? Well, they came to us because they had been tracking my coverage for Oklahoma Watch um, on the state's poor access to mental health care and how that's specifically leading to incarceration for people who really are in need of treatment, not necessarily jail time. Um, they just felt like the work that we were doing was a good fit for, you know, the mission that they have and vice versa. So we're really excited to be teaming up with them in this. Is there something specifically in your coverage that drew them in? Yeah, I think, um, you know, they've been watching my coverage for a while now. And, you know, I think in the last uh, year or so, we've done quite a bit of coverage around this idea of people being incarcerated instead of treated for their mental illness. So 
Um, you know, we wrote about a, a class action lawsuit early this year against the Department of Health that was started by um, four people and their attorneys who had been found incompetent by the courts. But rather than, uh, you know, being treated for their mental illness, they remained in jails where the Department of Mental Health says it was providing some treatment. Again, these are people who were um, found to be incompetent to stand trial and cannot therefore be charged with a crime, yet they were remaining in jails across the state. We've written about people who were arrested during a mental health crisis and ended up dying in jails that didn't have the ability to care for them. People like Ronald Given, who died in Pottawatomi County, um, Shannon Hanchett, she died at the Cleveland County Jail. Those are a couple of cases folks have probably heard about this year. Um, and we've recently wrote about a man who was picked up by Oklahoma City police during a mental health crisis. He was uh, high on PCP and a police officer arrived, put him in the back of a patrol car and drove him out to um, basically the edge of police jurisdiction and dropped him off on the side of the road there and left him alone. Uh, about five minutes later, that man was hit by a truck on the side of that road. So there are a lot of things like this happening that are leading to, you know, violent or deadly consequences for people with mental illness. You've been covering mental health for Oklahoma Watch since before the pandemic. Um, what's inspired that line of reporting? Well, actually, uh, it was not too long before the pandemic. I would say about a year before that I heard uh, former Oklahoma City Police Chief Bill City speak about his son's addiction and his family's response to that um, and all of the things he had learned in his personal life dealing with, you know, mental health and addiction. And he mentioned during that talk that mental health calls had doubled in only a few years at the department from about 10,000 calls a year to nearly 20,000. And immediately that struck me um, for many reasons. So I began digging into what what are mental health calls? What does that mean? Why are they increasing? Who's responding to these calls? What are their outcomes? And what I found was that police officers across the state are responding to these kind of calls every single day. And they're, they have very little training to do that kind of work, which means those interactions with people who have mental illness are often violent or deadly, um, as, you know, as we mentioned previously in some of the coverage that, that we've done this year. That's really what inspired this line of reporting, and, and I've sort of been digging into that idea ever since. The world has certainly changed its way it thinks and understands about mental health. Uh, has, has that gone the same for the reporting on mental health? Absolutely. Yes. The more we understand about how mental health and mental illness works, the more we understand about addiction um, and, you know, drug and alcohol abuse, the better the reporting is on these topics. At least um, that's my hope. So um, last year, the district attorney, uh, for instance, in Tulsa, his daughter was actually accused of stabbing him, and she was recently found not guilty due to mental illness. The coverage around that specific incident in Tulsa has been drastically different than coverage of, you know, an incident that happened less than a decade ago. A lot of our, our listeners probably remember this, 
when a, a state labor commissioner, Mark Costello, he was stabbed to death outside of a Brahms in Oklahoma City by his son, who had schizoaffective disorder with psychosis. And, you know, the way that was covered back in 2015 and, you know, the years following, that really stirred a lot of conversation and change in the state with how Oklahomans understand and, and think about mental illness um, in terms of getting someone, you know, help for their disease rather than incarcerating someone uh, who might be, you know, acting, quote unquote, not normal or doing something that might feel um, off to a police officer who's not trained in these types of things. Uh, there was even some changes to legislation following that situation. And again, that was only 10 years ago. So you can imagine the drastic changes in education and reporting even beyond that. Yeah. Um, so I know you can't really give away what you're working on this project here with the Carter Center. Is there anything you can tell us about it? Definitely. So uh, obviously, I'm going to you know keep a few details in my back pocket here so that you'll have something to read uh, later on when we're ready to publish. And that shouldn't be too long. My first project is is um, making some good progress, and I hope to have a story out in the next couple of weeks. So stay tuned for that. Um, I am certainly continuing a focus on the intersection of mental health and criminal justice. That includes police response to these mental health calls and what happens to people in crisis after police arrive, whether that be, um, you know, uh, going to find treatment. Uh, police officers often will take people to a hospital or some sort of treatment facility or whether it is, you know, diving into jails where people are taken by police officers while they're in crisis. That's really the focus of this first story that I will have coming out soon. And uh, the answers I found, you know, to that question so far are really devastating. But my hope is that this reporting will help educate lawmakers and other decision makers in Oklahoma about how to care for these folks and maybe lead to some changes around um, you know, what happens when someone interacts with police officers. There's, you know, always conversation, too, happening around um, whether police officers should be the people responding to calls like this. And I, I think I want to take a second, too, to remind our listeners, some of you have heard me talk about a mental health survey that we put out early in 2022, I think it was. Um, and that survey is still on our website. And essentially, it just asks people to tell us about their experience with mental illness um, or drug addiction and, and alcohol abuse. So if you go to our website, oklahomawatch.org forward slash mental health survey, you can fill that out and tell me about your experience with mental health or caring for a loved one who has mental illness Maybe you treat people. Maybe you're a law enforcement officer who responds to people in mental health crisis, and that's your connection. Whatever the case is, we want to hear from you. This is how we're able to do this kind of reporting and help educate people about what mental illness is and what it means for the people who are, you know, trying to, to receive that help. Yeah, yeah. Your li listeners are very, very important to us in, in this matter. Well, thanks, Whitney. You can read all of Whitney's coverage on the project and the survey at our website, oklahomawatch.org. You've been listening to Long Story Short, a weekly podcast that helps you get deeper into the investigative stories reported by Oklahoma Watch, which you can find on the web at oklahomawatch.org. This podcast was made possible by a grant from the Kirkpatrick Foundation, for which we are grateful. For Oklahoma Watch, I'm Sean Witt. Thanks for listening.